Welcome to Legal Ethics in the News, a podcast series from the New York City Bar Association featuring Stephen Gillers and Barbara S. Gillers discussing legal ethics issues making headlines in the legal or mainstream media. Stephen is the Hallahu Root Professor of Law, and Barbara is an adjunct professor of law both at New York University School of Law. In this episode, ethics issues from U.S. v. Sussman, right and wrong reasons to indict, and what is truth. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here are Barbara Gillers and Stephen Gillers. Hi, I'm Barbara Gillers. And I'm Stephen Gillers. This is our podcast, Legal Ethics in the News. Every few weeks, we'll, we'll discuss current legal ethics issues in, in the news. Uh, the issues may come from a bar ethics opinion, a court case, a story in the legal or popular press, or a suggestion from you. Your suggestions, send them to this address, Legal Ethics Podcast at NYC Bar. Org. We'll post some of the sources we mention in our podcast or citations to them on the City Bar site accompanying the podcast. You can also get our podcasts wherever you get your other podcasts like Google, Spotify, Apple, or elsewhere. For, for this, our 16th podcast, we, we want to talk about legal ethics issues that arose in or, or were suggested by the prosecution of Michael Sussman, the former Perkins Coey lawyer who was charged with lying to the FBI, he was acquitted on May 31 after a short trial. We will examine two issues. First, to what extent can a prosecutor choose to indict not only with the goal of getting a conviction, but also with the goal of public disclosure? through trial, of information that he or she believes, perhaps justifiably, the public should know. The second issue is when, if ever, can a lawyer's statement be both true and untrue? We look to the federal criminal law used to prosecute Michael Sussman and also to lawyer ethics rules. Before we proceed, however, We would like to thank the sponsor of this podcast, the Society to Remember Our Often Overlooked Justices, or Struge. Struge's motto is, quote, not every justice can be a Holmes or Brandeis, and in truth, most were not, close quote. Today, Struge asks us to remember Benjamin Robbins Curtis, of Massachusetts. President Fillmore nominated Curtis. He was on the court from 1851 to 1857. He was the first justice with a law degree, which he earned at Harvard. Which may explain why he was one of only two justices to dissent in Dred Scott v. Sanford. After leaving the court, He defended President Andrew Johnson at his impeachment trial. He died in 1875 at age 64, which means he continued to work and practice for 18 years after he left the court. 
So during the presidential contest of 2016, Michael Sussman, then at per Perkins Coie, was representing the Clinton campaign. The FBI knew this. It came to pass that Sussman gave the FBI's general counsel information purporting to show a connection between the Kremlin-affiliated Alpha Bank and the Trump Organization. The government claimed that in order to motivate the Bureau to investigate this connection, Sussman said he was not providing the information on behalf of any client. In other words, he, he was just being a good citizen. The government alleged that this was false, that in fact he was acting for the Clinton campaign in providing the information. Sussman was indicted under 18 U.S.C. 1001, a remarkably broad law that makes it a crime to lie to the government. Specifically, the provision makes it a felony punishable by up to five years in prison if a person, quote, in any matter within the jurisdiction of the executive legislative, or judicial branch of the government of the United States, knowingly and willfully makes any materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement or representation, end quote. So the elements of the crime are, first, knowing and willful falsity, and second, materiality. So, turning to our first issue, John Durham, who indicted Sussman, was the Justice Department's special counsel picked by Attorney General Barr to investigate the FBI's decision to investigate a Trump-Russia connection. Trump claimed that any such connection was a hoax. Assume that the proof available to Durham could prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt if the jury accepted it as true. In other words, there was what some may call a prima facie case. That's a safe assumption because the trial judge let the case go to the jury. After Sussman's acquittal, and even before the trial began, some conservative commentators tried to spin a Durham loss as a victory because of the information the trial disclosed. In other words, in this view, exposure of information can be a legitimate consideration in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. For example, on, on Fox, former Attorney General William Barr said, quote, while Durham did not succeed in getting a conviction from the D.C. jury, I think he accomplished something far more important. Uh, Barr continued, he crystallized the central role played by the Hillary campaign in launching, as a dirty trick, the whole Russiagate collusion narrative. And, quote, he exposed really dreadful behavior by the supervisors in the FBI. And concluding, Barr said, part of this operation is to try to get the real story out. And I have said from the beginning, you know, if we can get convictions, if they are achievable, then John Durham will achieve them. 
But the other aspect of this is to get the story out. Get the story out? Really? That goal is contrary to DOJ policies, which envision conviction as the only valid goal of a decision to prosecute. There are, of course, reasons why a case should not be prosecuted despite strong evidence of guilt, and DOJ policies explain these at great, great length. But nothing in the DOJ policies recognizes the goal of, quote, getting the story out, close quote, as a valid consideration. Barr is not the only source to praise Durham's loss as a victory. Conservative pundits did as well. For example, Wall Street Journal columnist Kimberly Strassel wrote this the week before the Sussman trial began. Quote, commentators spent last week warring over whether Judge Christopher Cooper's ruling on the use of evidence would help or hinder Mr. Durham's case. It doesn't much matter. Mr. Durham has already accomplished his far bigger goal with this narrow indictment. He's put every sleazy collusion player in the hot seat with ramifications beyond the courtroom. His far bigger goal? Just let that sink in for a minute. Strassel is not a lawyer and perhaps doesn't understand that exposure is not a legitimate reason to prosecute. But Barr doesn't have that excuse. He served two terms as the nation's attorney general. He would have had to have made or reviewed many prosecutorial decisions in his public career. You know, we can contrast this situation, a public prosecution, with civil litigation between two private parties. Then ulterior motives, even if decisive, are permitted. Well, let's give an example. How about a libel complaint against a media company where a prominent and very wealthy plaintiff's claim is weak but tenable? and her damages modest. She really wants to discourage others from writing about her by exacting a price for doing so. Or a plaintiff might use litigation to delay a legal obligation, to generate adverse publicity about an opponent, to take advantage of liberal discovery rules, or to force the defendant to spend money he cannot spare. There are limits, of course, there are the torts of malicious prosecution and abuse of process. But these are ordinarily pretty narrow and hard to prove. If the losing party will have to pay the winner's counsel fees, that could also be a disincentive. And Rule 4.4a makes it professional misconduct for a lawyer to take action that has, quote, no substantial purpose other than to embarrass, delay, or burden a third person, close quote. But the larger point remains, it is not categorically forbidden to bring a civil case with mixed motives. But criminal prosecution is different. 
We now want to move to the elements of 18 U.S.C. 1001 in the context of the Sussman prosecution and to the prohibition on false statements in two professional conduct rules, Rule 4.1 and Rule 8.4c. Prosecutors said that Sussman's statement that he was not working on behalf of a client was false and that it was material because it caused the FBI to pursue his lead when the Bureau would not have done so if he had told the truth. Contrary to what Sussman told the Bureau, he was acting as a lawyer for the Clinton campaign in offering the information to the Bureau, claimed the prosecutor. To appreciate the breadth of Section 1001, Imagine a defense lawyer who tells a prosecutor following indictment of her client that the client is innocent and looks forward to proving it at trial. We've all heard that. That happens often. But the client and the lawyer may have already concluded that conviction is near certain and that the client will eventually plead guilty to the best deal he can get. If the prosecutor knew the truth... He, he could have saved much time preparing for trial. Which means that the false statement is material. It, it mattered. Can a lawyer make a false statement of a client's position in, in civil or criminal cases in connection with negotiating the settlement of the case, including through a plea bargain? Model Rule 8.4c prevalent throughout the U.S. says that it is misconduct for a lawyer to, quote, engage in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. This rule doesn't even have a materiality element. Did the defense lawyer in this hypothetical violate that rule? Did she violate Section 1001? Or consider a civil case for breach of contract. The plaintiff has told his lawyer that he will accept $10,000 in settlement, but wants the lawyer to get as much as he can. The lawyer demands $15,000 to settle. The defendant's lawyer responds, "Mm, how about $10,000? Will your client accept $10,000? Can the plaintiff's lawyer say no? That's a lie. You might think, well, the plaintiff's lawyer can try to avoid a false answer by responding, my client wants 15000 To which the response may be, I'm sure he does, or more, but will he accept $10,000? At this stage of the negotiation, can the plaintiff's lawyer just say no without violating 8.4c? Or must he continue to equivocate? which is likely to signal that $10,000 is, in fact, acceptable. And what if the negotiation is with a Justice Department lawyer over an injury the plaintiff suffered because of a postal truck accident, ran a red light, for example? Would a no answer to the last question, will he accept $10,000, violate Section 1001 as well as Rule 8.4c? No answer is literally false, and the opposing lawyer is part of the executive branch. Maybe we should just say that in any event, 
A no answer is not material because the government lawyer will not believe it and not act any differently. Sussman was acquitted, and while we cannot know why, the best bet is that the jury did not believe that his statement, that he was not acting on behalf of any client, was material because the FBI would have done the same thing, whatever Sussman's motive. But, but recall that materiality is not an element in Rule 8.4c. And anyway, if the government indicts the civil lawyer who answers no, materiality will be for a jury to decide. And no lawyer looks forward to being acquitted if she can avoid getting indicted in the first place. We should also identify another professional conduct rule here, Model Rule 4.1, also prevalent throughout the U.S. It says, in the course of representing a client, a lawyer shall not knowingly make a false statement of material fact or law to a third person. Here, materiality is an element which might suggest some degree of inconsistency between rules 4.1 and 8.4c. A no answer might be said to violate rule 4.1 because the opposing lawyer, learning that $10,000 will not settle the case, will then spend time <clears throat> preparing for trial. The false answer would matter, which makes it material. We can, see, we can seek some clarity in comment two to rule 4.1. It says, quote, under generally accepted conventions in negotiation, certain types of statements ordinarily are not taken as statements of material fact. Estimates of price or value placed on the subject of a transaction and a party's intentions as to an acceptable settlement of claim are ordinarily in this category. We think our no answer to this hypothetical, though untrue, is not false within the meaning of Rule 4.1 in light of this comment. But we note that Rule 8.4 does not have this comment. So the upshot is that an untrue statement is also a true statement? Or at least not a false one. Welcome to Lawyerland, Alice. The opposing lawyer should understand that there are, quote, generally accepted conventions, close quote, that make the untrue not false in circumstances like this one. Or does it make the untrue statement not material when materiality is required because the opposing lawyer should take the no with a grain of salt and not act in reliance on it. I kind of like that explanation better. Literally false, but not material. But I could accept an untrue but not false perspective as well. Putting materiality aside, how does any of this help us with the case against Sussman? Let's assume that Sussman's statement... He had no client in connection with his visit to the FBI general counsel was false. Well, that would not be a statement of intention or a settlement position, either of which might not count as false in lawyer land. 
So Sussman's statement would violate section 1001 because it is false. Sussman obviously would know that. If, on the other hand, the statement is true, there could be no crime. The conventions referenced in the comment to Rule 4.1, conventions that can convert a false statement into a true statement in some circumstances, or at least to a not untrue statement, are likely to reinforce the public image of lawyers as disingenuous, even liars. They can lie and get away with it. The boundaries of any such conventions are not crystal clear. A lawyer who hopes to rely on them would be well advised to do a little research, including in bar ethics opinions and secondary literature, and to be very careful about the precise words she uses. That is surely true if the fact represented is not the speaker's future intent or settlement position, but an historical fact. There's no convention for that. Let's give some examples. An example would be if a defendant's lawyer in a negligence case represented the limits of the defendant's homeowner's policy as $100,000 when he knows that it is $300,000. Well, then, wouldn't the plaintiff lawyer be entitled to rely on that representation? She would. See, for example, Fire Insurance Exchange v. Bell from the Indiana Supreme Court, which we cite in the material accompanying this podcast. And in some jurisdictions, the speaker will be liable for negligent misrepresentation, even if she does not know that her statement is false. See, for example, Graycast versus Proud from the Seventh Circuit, also cited in the podcast materials. Even silence may be actionable if there is a duty to speak. That duty could arise if what you do say is incomplete, even if you had no duty to say anything in the first place. For this, you might see the California appellate decision in Vega versus Jones Day, also cited in the podcast materials. So the lesson here is be careful what you say, and sometimes it will be safest to say as little as possible. We again thank our sponsor, the Society to Remember Our Often Overlooked Justice, Justices. You're welcome to nominate a candidate for a future podcast. You can write to barbara.gillers at nyu.edu or stephen.gillers at nyu.edu or both of us. Explain why you think your candidate should be recognized. Current justices are not eligible. That's our podcast for today. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you learned something. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find citations and other materials mentioned in this podcast at the program's page at nycbar.org podcasts. Have you seen or heard a topic in the news that you think the Gillers should consider covering? 
email legalethicspodcast at nycbar.org. The Gillers do not provide ethics advice to individual lawyers. Lawyers admitted to practice in New York with a question about their own prospective conduct under the New York rules may receive informational guidance by calling the City Bar's Ethics Hotline at 212-382-6663. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was recorded on June 7th, 2022 and produced by Alex Cardaris.